Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Monica Mafla, and I'm a nurse practitioner at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford. Today, we will be speaking about mental health in the CICU. Hi, I'm Casey Bohr. I'm a nurse practitioner in the CICU at University of Maryland Children's Hospital in Baltimore. And I'm David Warho, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm going to jump in as a co-host with Monica. My name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's weird to be on this side of the table. (laughs) (laughs) I know. For those of our listeners know that David is one of our executive producers. It's so great to have him here as a guest today to speak about this topic. At the 2022 PCICS conference, you guys had the pleasure of speaking to us about mental health in the CICU. Perhaps you could each go over what you spoke about today in summary. Feel free not to get out your slides and give us a whole new presentation, but we want to hear all about the importance of mental health and the way that you find it important amongst all of our teams. Yeah, so I talked about resilience in the CICU, and I think the most important takeaways from my talk is I I wanted to make sure that people working in the CICU know that it's okay to not be resilient, and it's okay to sometimes have those moments where we don't feel well. And the most important thing in finding resilience is to recognize that we've experienced a stressor or uh, a trauma that has um, compromised our resilience. I spoke a little bit about sort of the epidemiology or what we know about well-being in pediatric cardiac intensivists, which is we don't know a lot, but about 50% of pediatric cardiac intensivists, based on our most recent work, which was pre-COVID data, reported symptoms of burnout. And about 33%, 32-point-something percent were at risk due to their well-being of an adverse event, including suicide, a patient error, or leaving the cardiac ICU workforce. So why don't we jump straight to the endpoint? Because I'm sure the listeners want to hear. Casey, maybe you can tell us what your ideas for building resilience in the CICU are and what you talked about with that. Yeah. So I think building resilience in the CICU has to be approached from multiple levels. But we also need to shift our focus from the individual being the responsible person for maintaining their own resilience to the unit and the system helping healthcare workers be resilient. Um, But there's definitely ways that you can address it from each level. As an individual, there are things you can do. As a unit and a team, there are things you can do. And then also there's things that the leadership can do from a hospital or a system level to address the resilience at the bedside. You both mentioned that in your talk. You both said that it requires organizational support to promote resilience and well-being in the CICU. What have your particular organizations done? If you could give us a few examples, even one. I know none of us are perfect. We're all working to improve these things. But is there anything you can let our listeners know that is an example that perhaps they can take home to their home institution? I think one of the important things that we've done is during COVID, we've broadened our access to the employee assistance program. And we've made it really widely available and it's really easy to get an appointment. And I think it's one of those things that if you're able to recognize that you're having a problem, find a resource to talk about that problem, then it makes it so much easier for you to process and kind of move on from that. 
Yeah, very similar at our institution. It's a little bit unique because the faculty are UCSD faculty, but the nurses and NPs are RADI employees. And so there's actually been things on both sides really to enhance well-being and give resources. Definitely things like the Employee Assistance Program, building new infrastructure, so like a gym so that when you're on call, you actually can go decompress. There are obviously really targeted mental health and well-being programs made by our GME office for our trainees, because another thing I talked about was training well-being, and specifically pediatric cardiology may be a little bit less so than pediatric critical care, but the fellows are also at risk of burnout and poor well-being as well. So lots of targeted programs in that regard. I think Schwartz Rounds is I think Schwartz Rounds are an amazing resource as well, just to process feelings and to have open discussion about these types of topics. You know, when the organization sponsors Schwartz Rounds, it really does open up that dialogue that it's okay to talk about these things. It's okay not to be okay. And we really have to come together as a community and figure out ways that we can overcome some of the challenges that face our maybe not just mental health, but overall well-being. So I think all of those are great resources. One thing that I did mention in my talk is that it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of a solution. There's not really one way. Otherwise, you know, someone would be a quadruple billionaire or something if they really figured out like an easy fix for this. Mm -hmm. So I think having different diverse options so that they work well for different people. But at the core of it, it's really that unit culture of wellness and trying to make sure that everyone understands that those resources are available because we actually care about you, not because we have to make them available or, you know, we got a, a deal or a discount or anything like that. But really that the culture of wellness is probably one of the most important parts. Besides organizations, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but I have seen some foundations that have been formed by parents of children with congenital heart disease who have supported things like mental health. At my institution specifically, we work with a nonprofit organization. We've worked with the Ollie Hinkle Foundation and have signed on with them. And it's been a great resource for both families and patients and their families to have free mental health services. Have you guys had any exposure to those type of services? Yeah, we actually just started with Ollie Hinkle as well. So I can't speak to experiencing it, but I do look forward to seeing how it's going to impact all of us. Yeah, I think there's certainly an interplay with the mental wellness of the patients and the families and the mental wellness of the team. We're all in this bubble together, right? And we are in each other's space and we're talking with each other and communicating with each other. And I think there's a lot of things that we share with each other with body language. And just it's interesting sort of to think about how the wellness of a team and the wellness of a patient family can actually probably interact with each other too. Yeah. So pretty complex. You're an individual who then is working inside team, inside of a unit, inside of a hospital, and all those complexities. And as you said, then add this layer of patient, all of their experiences and what they bring and how does that impact us and how do we impact them? Mm -hmm. I wanted to explore something that both of you have touched on a little bit more. As you talked about, you both said, you know, making space for when we don't feel good and being okay with that and being able to say it. And 
you actually went on to then mention things like Schwartz rounds, where there is some intentional and organization supported infrastructure for that. But I was just wondering if you could give us your thoughts on like say listeners who are listening to this, give themselves permission, as you're saying, to create that space for them where it's okay to feel not good. But then what? How should they go about their day? How should they go home? What's the next step? How do they process that or integrate it um, to get back to their baseline? That's a great question, Sadie. I think one thing that I said in my talk was something that's really important is to destigmatize, but don't normalize. So yes, life sucks sometimes. Things aren't always going to be perfect. That is okay. But it's not okay to accept that as the status quo or the new normal. And, you know, I think, especially from an organizational standpoint, it's not okay to have the attitude that people are going to be burned out. There's not much that we can really do to fix it. So it's it's okay. And then take that forward to the provider or to the nurse or to the trainee and say, it's okay that you're not doing well, but that's just how life is. So I think we have to destigmatize it and say like, yes, it's okay. It happens, but we definitely cannot accept that as the new norm, especially after going through a global pandemic. I think everybody has had some hit to their mental wellness. And so, you know, everybody talks about the new normal, the new normal. I I don't think the new normal can be all of us being miserable. So I think that's also another side, flip side of that coin. I think each person's wellness journey is individual and also probably a little bit of a journey. I think for myself, I find little pieces of better mental health sometimes, you know, a couple times a year. I'll change up my routine or things that I do. But I think each person can spend time thinking about what makes them happy outside of work? What brings them joy? Do they like to spend time with their kids maybe? Or is there something like yoga or running or painting or being creative? I met someone at the conference actually who's a published author. And I was like, wow, how do you do that in your spare time as a cardiac intensivist? And she said, oh, it's my it's my outlet. It's my self-care. And so, you know, I'm not a published author. I don't think I ever will be, probably at least novels. But it was interesting to me that that was her self-care. So I think it's a really personal thing probably for everybody. I'll give a shout out because that's my yeah. amazing From colleague, Chella. right, right. Heather Viamonte. Yes, thank you. I couldn't remember her name. But I think each person has something that is going to bring them joy and I think also it's really important that you recognize when you're not feeling okay, because then you can shift your focus to finding what helps you in that moment and in that time. And so you may have some, call them maintenance regimen things, and then you may have some acute crisis regimen things. You know, maybe when you're feeling extra stressed, you meditate. But, you know, on a regular basis, you don't need to or, you know, something like that. I think each person might be able to find something that helps them become more well overall. Yeah. Along those lines, one thing also that someone in the session at the end came up, uh, Seth Gray from Sick Kids, and told me about his experience having a mental wellness accountability partner, someone where you could text when things aren't going great or you really want to just 
not going to work or anything like that, but having someone to talk to about that. And I think that's so important. I know that at one point during the pandemic, when I was at probably my lowest, I got a life coach just to help me reprioritize a lot of things and manage my procrastination is my major source of burnout and emotional exhaustion and self-doubt and anxiety producing everything. So um, having someone to just help you manage that and prioritize and keep you on track and keep you accountable. But whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, a coach, an accountability partner, a therapist, it's so helpful because it really does give you some accountability and keeps you on track. And it also makes you really prioritize what what makes me happy? What makes me feel like I'm contributing to the world or doing something that really brings worth to myself? And sometimes you just need to get a reality check every once in a while. So I think that's another thing. I'm just going to summarize what I think that I'm taking away from you guys is both messages. One, the self-awareness of what you're feeling Two is sort of hearing the permission to process and accept those feelings. Three is some kind of tool then that you give yourself, whether that's however individualized you need it to be. And I think the fourth sort of sounds like accountability and I guess active participation, Mm -hmm. sort of intentionality in it. That's what I'm taking away. Hey, podcast listeners, it is time for a break to hear from one of our PCICS institutional sponsors, Children's Health System of Texas. Children's Health is committed to making life better for children. As one of the largest and most prestigious pediatric healthcare providers in the country and the leading pediatric healthcare system in North Texas, Children's Health cares for children through more than 750,000 patient visits annually. The Children's Health System includes its flagship hospital, Children's Medical Center Dallas, as well as Children's Medical Center Plano, our Children's House Inpatient Rehabilitation Hospital, the Children's Healthcare Network, specialty centers, rehabilitation facilities, and physician services. Children's Medical Center Dallas continues to be the only North Texas hospital to be ranked in 10 out of 10 pediatric specialties by U.S. News and World Report. Through its academic affiliation with UT Southwestern Medical Center, Children's Health is a leader in life-changing treatments, innovative technology, and groundbreaking research. This affiliation led to establishing the Children's Medical Research Institute in 2011, committed to pursuing research in regenerative medicine, cancer, biology, and metabolism. For more information, Follow Children's Health on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, or visit childrens.com. I think it's worth pointing out that we had an excellent parent speaker in the session as well. Mm. Her name was Christy Wolf, and she's not here to join us, but she talked a lot about her ability to cope uh, with her son's illness. And in the opening plenary session, she shared about a loss that she had, her father who was in cardiology. And I think it's worth mentioning that no matter what people are struggling with, it's not okay to lose a healthcare provider to any of the things we've been discussing. And as David mentioned, having an accountability partner, maybe that's not something that some of us 
feel comfortable doing. You know, we hear so many stories in the media about people who shine their light on everyone and they still struggle internally. So it's okay, I think, for us all to encourage people to reach out for help individually, anonymously, by reaching out to places like the National Suicide Prevention Line, whose three-digit dialing code is 988, either by text or phone. Thank you, Monica. That's really important to emphasize. I did mention it's not okay to expect perfection in our field in mental health, but I don't think it's acceptable for us to ever lose any healthcare provider to suicide. So thank you for sharing that. I agree. I think we can probably all think of someone in healthcare who has lost their life to suicide. And it's such a tragedy that this beautiful work we do would cause someone such harm. So I think there's definitely resources to help those people. And if you are feeling alone, there's resources to help you. And uh, I know that your colleagues care about you, your family cares about you, and your patients and their families care about you. Yeah, I know. It's sort of a deep, dark talk we're having, but it's really important. Sadie, I actually had a question for you because I know you've been in some work with coaching and things and you presented at the pre-conference in the 2022 conference. Was there anything you have to add from your work in in that realm and, and the learning that you've done that could help our listeners? Actually, a lot of what you're saying has been, you know, studied and there are psychological states that have been shown through various fields, positive psychology and industrial field studied for the last 30 and 40 years that have been associated with more job satisfaction, engagement, purpose and less stress. And some of them are the ones that you guys spoke about, for example, self-awareness and having a growth mindset. Both of those are mindsets or beliefs. Some behaviors that we talked about were emotional regulation and cognitive agility. We're not taught how to deal with emotions, right? And we have a lot of actual societal constructs that we've come up with that, you know, death is sad, for example, is the example we used. But we all know listening to this podcast, being at the bedside of a futile patient, that sometimes death is a relief. And so how is it possible that for one person, death is a relief and maybe for a family, death can incite anger and grief. And so somewhere between that stimulus and response, there's two very different narratives going on in each of our minds. And um, I give a big homage to this most beautiful man, Viktor Frankl, who you may know. He was an Austrian um, neurologist, a psychiatrist, and a philosopher. And what is so striking to me about this man is that he was a Holocaust survivor. And he has this famous quote that sort of metacognition is based on. And this is what he has to say. Between stimulus and response, there is space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. I don't share that to gaslight us because I know that's definitely something that the medical community has been going through in the last, um, this is 2022, 2021 is like sort of medical gaslighting. I don't say it in that vein. And there are certainly things in this world that I want to be angry about. I want to be sad about, but it's because I want to be, because it aligns with who I am and my belief system, not because I'm sort of at the mercy of these external things that I can't control. Someone yelling at me could be a parent, could be a provider, could be any sort of thing. And so giving myself that space to get out of my limbic system and back into my prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. which is where all of our 
highest quality thoughts come from, our best problem solving. It's where we go when we want to dream of who we want to be. And our limbic system holds all of our emotions and it just wants us to survive and be safe. But when we feel something like anger or grief, it's a hundred times faster at processing than our prefrontal cortex. So it just kicks in to save us and say, fight, flight, freeze, you know, which is some flavor of like aggression is fight, flight is some flavor of avoidance, and freeze is some flavor of inaction. And it's often this sort of knee-jerk reaction because we're just trying to stay alive and run away from the bear or in this situation, run away from an angry family member or colleague. And just how can we create that space to break that cycle and get back to our prefrontal cortex and give us a chance to react from the most authentic place that we can, from the most aligned place that we can? Because when we give ourselves autonomy, we give ourselves choice. And it's something that no one can take away from you. And it gives you full authority when you're acting in alignment with your choice. It gives you full authority of your experience. And so it's exactly what you guys were saying. The first step is self-awareness. Right. Can you be aware that in that moment, maybe your body is feeling like heavy or tense or your mind is racing with all these thoughts that aren't your usual self or you're acting in a way that's not yourself? And then exactly like you guys said, giving yourself permission Mm -hmm. and creating that space And then you said it earlier, refocus. And that's the same term and the step that we used in the pre-conference, which is re-engaging your prefrontal cortex again. How do I want to show up? How do I want to be? Yes, can I hold sadness, but also choose to generate courage because I'm still at this patient's bedside and I don't yet have time to process and I need to still generate some self-compassion or whatever it may be. And so, yeah, it's very much what you guys have been talking about, just sort of simplifying it for an everyday tool that we could use. Great. Thanks for sharing with us on the fly, Sadie. Can I say something about that? So I've been reading The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book by Bessel van der Kolk, who is a trauma psychiatrist. And I was thinking about it because you were talking about the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. And... I've been thinking a lot about the limbic system and the pathways of trauma in our brain as healthcare workers who see traumatic things. So what I find really fascinating is that when we experience something that we've experienced before, maybe a surgeon yelling at you or maybe uh, a cardiac arrest or something that we experienced the first time we experienced it, it was extremely stressful and traumatic and it put us into our limbic system. And then the next time you experience that, if you don't have awareness, which, you know, this happens to all of us, but if you don't have awareness, your prefrontal cortex can't take over and say, don't worry, you got this cardiac arrest this time. You've done it before. You did your PALS algorithm. You know, you can sort of relive that experience through your limbic system, and then it prevents you from functioning competently. And so I think it's so interesting to think about as healthcare workers in an intensive care unit, probably, you know, one of the hardest units to choose to work in, in medicine. And we see all these traumatic things and they live in our limbic system. And it's really interesting to think about finding the awareness to take over that stress and say, hey, actually, it's okay. You're safe. We can do this. Yeah. And that's such a good point. And not only does that neural pathway get created, But every time you practice, 
stimulus response, stimulus response, you're strengthening that pathway. It's like driving home and you're like lost in thought and all of a sudden you're home. You're like, how did I get here? (laughs) But you've practiced that pathway so much that it's automatic. Your brain wants to be efficient. And so it creates these pathways. But thankfully with functional MRIs, we know that we still have neuroplasticity even as adults. And so that self-awareness, even if it's afterwards, like a decade later, But you reflect back and you can see that it's out of that knee-jerk response. Even that awareness after the fact can start to disrupt the pathway. And the more we practice it, hopefully the more we can start to do it in the moment as the words are coming out and maybe even beforehand. But at least it gives me some hope that we have a tool um, to rewire our brains, which then dictate our behavior if we want. Yeah. And then sort of along those lines, it's also important to recognize that we as people who are not maybe like head honchos of hospitals, we as people at the bedside and in a team have the power to impact that dressful trigger and then the response. So we did an exercise during the session where I asked people to imagine a cardiac arrest that had great environment, great team dynamics, and whether the next day they dreaded coming back to the hospital. And most people said, no, like, I'm okay. Like, it was good teamwork, and it was a good environment with a bad outcome. Then we talked about the same situation where the teamwork was not great, and almost everybody except for, I think, three people were like, okay, I don't want to go to work the next day. And then we talked about the same thing with a bad outcome and a good team and a bad outcome and a bad team. And again, it's that ability of us as teammates and coworkers, colleagues to impact how those pathways again are produced. So the environment, the culture, the unit, all of that is really heavily influential on well-being and stress response and trauma, (laughs) all of these things that we're talking about. And it's a legacy you can leave as a senior person in your unit, whatever role you're in. If you teach the people that are your colleagues or that you're training that these stressful situations we encounter happen, but if you learn how to cope with them, if you take care of yourself, if you keep your wellness in mind, then your outcomes will be better after the fact. I completely agree with both of you. And I think to David's point, there are leaders all around us that can help drive these type of things. And you don't have to have initials after your name or a title or be paid extra to be a leader. It really is from your own passion to change things like this, to help teach people, like you said, Casey, these skills because you know them. And there are leaders all around us who can help promote this type of resilience in our teams. And I think that's an important point for people to take home. It's all around us and we need to tap into those resources because we know our leaders are dealing with bigger things. And while this is a big thing, it's something that we can all help with too. And I love, Monica, part of your message is looking at yourself as your own leader, that you don't have to wait on or rely on these other people. But I think we often forget who else we're working with in these small teams, big teams. And just by being an example yourself, whatever it is, curiosity, authenticity, you know, the only thing we can control is our own personal influence, which can be either positive or negative. And we've all experienced that person who comes in hot and bothered, and then it affects everybody. We're all hot and bothered. But 
On the flip side, in the context we're speaking of, what if we came in with a positive personal influence and just by sort of modeling that behavior, just because it serves you and benefits you, but I wonder who else it might serve in just sort of an organic way that maybe it's small, but at least it's meaningful in our sort of daily lives as all these other really important structural policy things are taking place. I love that you brought that perspective. At least that's what I took from it. Yeah, thank you. I think it's it's great. I love the summary. Is there anything else that you guys want to share that you didn't get a chance to? I guess I'm just grateful for our teams and the work that we all do and the impact that we make. And it's a, you know, a good mantra to think about when you're thinking about your own wellness too, is that there's so much value in the work that we do. So I can't believe I almost forgot to mention my research as we're talking about wellness in the uh, cardiac intensive care unit. I did a study that ended about a year ago in PCICU advanced practice provider and nurse well-being. Overall, my APP sample was pretty small, so it's hard for me to draw conclusions about their well-being, but overall their average scores didn't meet criteria for being at risk. But the nurses overall, 76% met criteria at risk for well-being issues, which means they're at risk for burnout, fatigue, poor quality of life, um, at risk for making a medical error, and at risk for leaving their job. And actually, a third of the nurse respondents said they were planning to leave the CICU in the next year. And that study ended in January of 2022. So I think, you know, maybe we have seen that you know, exodus of nurses from, from the units uh, across the country. I know at least we have, and two thirds of the nurses said they were planning to leave the CICU in the next three to five years. So we definitely have a lot of work to do to help CICU nurse well-being, And that's why I'm really grateful that Monica, David, and Sadie, you guys wanted to do this podcast episode. I do hope that cultural shifts are underway in our field And I do feel that awareness is the first step towards addressing these issues. And I hope that we'll make progress in this area in the near future. Yeah. And I think it's really hard to take yourself and put yourself in your patient's shoes or a bedside nurse's shoes or a trainee's shoes or another attending's shoes or the surgeon's shoes even. But every time I do that mental exercise, even if I'm hot and bothered, it changes my mindset. And so I think that's one other thing is just to give people grace because we're all coming from a different place and we all have different things that are weighing on whatever our reaction is to something that's happening. So everybody just needs a little reminder or a little check like, hey, think about what this person's going through. And I think that really can help mold the way that you start to allow that person's reactions to impact you and vice versa. I think that's a great ending statement for us to all take home. I love it. I appreciate both of your insights, yours as well, Sadie, on this spot. Yours as well, Monica. (laughs) Thank you both again for joining us and for speaking with Sadie and I today. We've really enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.